Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. David Lewis. He's Senior Lecturer in Social Psychology at Murdoch University in Australia. So, Dr. Lewis, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so today I wanted to ask you about several aspects of your work, namely personality, friendship, and a little bit about attractiveness, all of them from an evolutionary perspective. Let's start with personality. So uh, what would you say is personality from an evolutionary perspective? How is it best understood from that perspective? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question, and I think there's two very different ways to answer that. So one, in one way we can answer that by saying, okay, personality from an evolutionary perspective, what we're interested in there is looking at individual differences in behavior, cognition, and emotion. So broadly speaking, we're, we're interested in those three features. Now, there's two different ways to approach that variation both within individuals and between individuals. And one way to approach that variation is to really investigate the underlying psychological or cognitive mechanisms that are responsible for producing variation between individuals in behavior, cognition, and affect. A different approach, and this is the one that's a bit more prevalent in the mainstream personality literature, but my colleagues and I are attempting to sort of call this into question, is to think about personality as the labels that we actually give, the, the labels that would best be described as our perception or perceptions of other people. And so those are two very different views. So one question is, has to do with the information processing structures or mechanisms inside an individual that produce variation in behavior. And a separate question is trying to understand how we as perceivers of differences in people produce the terms like extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, because those I don't think are properly understood as properties of the individual, or at least they don't characterize the actual nature of their psychology. Rather, those are sort of useful shortcuts for us to use when we interact with others, as well as deciding on with which individuals to become social partners with. Right. And I mean, to try to understand personality from an evolutionary perspective, do you resort to a particular personality inventory, like, for example, the big five? I'm asking you that because even in the field of personality psychology, as I've been talking with several personality psychologists on the show, I get the idea or the impression that even the universality of the big five personality traits is questioned. And so, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it seems that it applies very well in Western countries, but outside that, it doesn't seem to be that uh, so. So, I mean, what do you think about it? Yeah, and no, I think I think that's a, a great, it's a really terrific insight. And I think that the historical approaches that have that have characterized personality psychology and the study of individual differences have been really important in in the the very thorough descriptive work that they've done. But as you're highlighting more recently work has shown that these factors like the big five or the five factor model that they aren't cross-culturally universal and i think what that's really doing is it's providing us with insight into the idea that those 
personality traits, that is those traits that ultimately are derived from our language, the, the terms we use to describe other people, they probably shouldn't be the targets of research that is seeking to understand individual differences in behavior. And so I, I think, I think it, it's a bit misguided to think that there are five things inside people that vary in their levels or six things. I think a more productive approach is really to ask what adaptive problems did humans in our evolutionary, pa evolutionary past recurrently face? And for each of those problems, we can then generate hypotheses about the kinds of psychological systems that we would expect evolution to have shaped in order to deal or treat or solve those specific problems. And using that kind of approach, we actually can generate predictions in advance about cross-cultural variability, not just in behavior, but also potentially in how many quote-unquote traits emerge across different cultures. Because we may see, it may be the case that in cultures that have more complex social structures, appears to be a greater number of personality traits that emerge relative to societies that have a less complex socio-ecological structure. Right, but I mean, these problems we were exposed to and had to solve during our evolutionary history, would they translate into a specific set of personality traits, each of them to deal with each specific problem, or is that not the best way of thinking about it? That, that's a great way, and let me, um, let me candidly say that's the way that I thought would have been best. So about eight years ago, I was working on some of these projects, and I was what I was trying to do is I was trying to show or test or, or illustrate how jealousy, which is a psychological adaptation, or at least a hypothesized psychological adaptation to deal with threats to valued social relationships, that it was, I think I used the term, a specialized subclass of neuroticism. And so what I really was trying to do is, is my target was neuroticism. And I don't, I think that I was a bit misled in that regard. And what I really should have just been doing is focusing on the adaptive problems of abandonment or defection or infidelity by one's relationship partner, and then I should have been just mapping out what the design features of a system designed to solve those problems, or a system that's well designed to solve those problems, what features it would be likely to have. So I suspect that there's not a one-to-one -one mapping between adaptive problems and personality traits as a general rule. That said, there does seem to be a pretty close one-to-one -one mapping of anger as an evolved psychological mechanism for dealing with the adapt the broad class of adaptive problem of other people not placing enough value on your welfare that the system that's designed for motivating anger cognitions affect and actual behavior it does seem to account for a large portion of the variation in the personality trait factor of agreeableness mm -hmm. so that is to say that uh, yeah, I think that that's that's how I would describe this. So the anger the anger system in many ways does seem to be what's responsible for individual differences in, or perceptions of individual differences in the trait agreeableness. Right, but would it make sense in any way to think about personality traits as adaptations themselves? Or, for example, uh, you you mentioned anger. Would it be the case then that 
uh, each personality trait would be associated with a specific set of emotions and the emotions themselves would be the adaptations. Yeah, well, I think, I think, right. So I think you're, yeah, I think what you get, your last, you're the last thing to which you alluded, I think is probably the most insightful. So I, again, I'd say eight years ago, I was trying to sort of, my, my targets were the personality traits themselves, neuroticism, conscientiousness, openness. And I don't think that that's the most productive approach. I think that working with the mechanisms, if we're talking about a coordinating mechanism like anger, I think that that's going to be the most productive approach. And then in turn, we can show that individual differences in the anger program or the anger system can explain or can account for individual differences or perceptions of individual differences in agreeableness. And I suspect that, that additional work on other emotions, so I think that jealousy as, as a coordinating a behavioral coordination program, I think it's going to be able to account for a lot of variation in neuroticism. And my, my colleagues and I have quite a bit, have several studies of as of yet unpublished research showing that, that's act, that that is precisely the case. Um, in, terms of, in terms of other quote-unquote personality traits, I'm not sure whether those will be accounted for best by, by, by emotion systems. Um, and obviously, I could refer you, I could refer you to, to many uh, well-versed researchers in, in lots of different areas. But in some of my research, for example, at another time, I was targeting openness and individual differences and openness to experience. And what we showed is that these supposed trait levels in individuals seem to shift with mating opportunities. And so I'm not sure if if there's any specific emotion program that can account for individual differences in openness to experience. But I, I, th I think that, again, a really productive approach that's going to be able to explain a lot of variation between individuals in openness is going to be one that, that looks at what are the costs and benefits of engaging in the kinds of behaviors that end up being observed and perceived by others as being open. Right. In your work, I read about the condition-dependent model of individual differences. So what is it and does it have anything to do with what you're, you were just saying? Yeah, and I think there's quite a few different, different examples I could draw on to, to try to explain that concept. I think anger, um, if we can weave a common thread through today's conversation, I think anger can offer something really illustrative. And so, as I said, anger is, is hypothesized to be this behavioral coordination system that's designed to deal with other people not placing enough value on your welfare. That is, they just don't care that much about how, how, what kind of, whether you get a good outcome or not. Right. And through anger, we can inflict costs on others or engage in a bunch of different behaviors that, through which we can get other people to recalibrate how much weight they place or how much value they place on welfare. Now, my or an individual's ability to inflict those costs, one, one variable that, that an individual's ability to inflict costs depends on is their physical formidability, in particular, at least ancestrally, among men. And so that is to say that people who are stronger or more physically formidable may be better able to inflict costs on others who don't place enough value on their welfare. And so a condition-dependent model of personality or a condition-dependent model of a psychological adaptation or a psychological mechanism would suggest that our psychological systems are designed to take as input or designed to process features of our 
physical phenotype or our condition like our physical formidability. And so in this case, our anger system, one of the inputs it takes is how physically formidable am I? How, how capable am I of inflicting costs on other individuals? And if I'm very able to inflict costs on other individuals because of my high levels of physical, for, physical formidability and others are not going to be very good at inflicting costs back on me because I'm so physically formidable, then my threshold for activation of my anger system may be lower. So that is to say that individuals who are more physically formidable may have may have anger more quickly triggered for them because the, cost, the, the probabilistic benefits of pursuing that anger strategy are actually higher for them because they're able to inflict costs and protect themselves against the against others inflicting costs on them. Mm-hmm. So before we move on to talking about friendship, let me, let me just ask you a general question. So how does evolutionary psychology account for both a shared human nature that supposedly all of us as humans have in common and individual differences? Because I mean, perhaps from a very simplistic perspective, it would seem a little bit con- contradictory. Right. Yeah, yes. Uh, first, and to many people who are not well-versed in evolutionary psychology, and it's, it's, it's entirely understandable that many people wouldn't be well-versed in evolutionary psychology because it's very often not a core component of undergraduates, undergraduate or graduate education. Yeah. Um, the, the belief, I think a lot of people hold the belief, even though it's a mistaken one, that what evolutionary psychology proposes are universal or species typical or cross-culturally ubiquitous behaviors. And that's not, that's, that is emphatically not what evolutionary psychology proposes or has ever proposed. Instead, what evolutionary psychology proposes are universal evolved psychological mechanisms or universal psychological adaptations. And we can sort of think about these as latent cognitive structures or latent cognitive systems that you are equipped equipped with an anger system, I'm equipped with an anger system, and people in every part of the world to every typically developing human is equipped with an anger system. Now, all of us being equipped with an anger system does not lead to the prediction that all of us will have equal levels of anger. What it suggests is that all of us have some underlying psychological system that is capable of producing anger in response to specific inputs from the environment. And so when you have when you have a proper understanding of evolutionary psychology as advancing this idea of species typical mechanisms as opposed to species typical behavior that framework actually is one that actively generates in advance predictions about where we should expect both similarities and differences between individuals. So we would probably expect all individuals to experience, for example, the activation of their jealousy program in response to a mate's infidelity. However, the, the magnitude of that response as well as the, the specific behavior Outputs the individual deploys, we'd expect that to be dependent on a bunch of different variables that across environments and across deep evolutionary time would have been associated with different costs and benefits. So to sort of briefly summarize that, when when you recognize that the core idea of evolutionary psychology is universal underlying psychological systems as opposed to universal behavior, and you understand the 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 context sensitivity 
of the context-sensitive design of those systems, you realize that evolutionary psychology isn't, there's no, it's not an effortful process for evolutionary psychology to account for a shared human nature and individual differences. It's actually the, it is our shared human nature in response to environmental variability across individuals that produces individual differences. Right. So uh, now to talk about friendships, what are friendships from an evolutionary perspective? I mean, what are the kinds of social functions that they serve and that might perhaps have been adaptive in our evolutionary history? And uh, is, it, is friendship associated with specific evolutionary mechanisms like reciprocal altruism, for example? Yeah, okay, that, that's, that's a really terrific question. So let me try to, there's several questions there, all of which yes. are, some of which have established answers and some of which have answers that have been, were proposed decades ago, for example, by um, John Tooby and Lita Cosmides in, a, in some foundational work that um, called the Banker's Paradox. And, okay, so what is, what, is, what is friendship from an evolutionary standpoint? Well, I think that one way of thinking about it is that humans ancestrally faced a diverse set of adaptive problems. And some of those problems, perhaps many of those problems, would have been best or economically or most efficiently solved if we could recruit others to assist us with those problems. And those problems would have ranged from hunting large game to rearing, collectively rearing children, to foraging, to, and, and, I, and, the, and the, the list goes on. And so I think that that there would have been selection pressures for people to be able to identify others in their social environment and form relationships with them, whether instrumental or in temporary and, and instrumental or long-term and enduring, so that, that there essentially would be mutual benefits that would be reaped from forming those alliances. As my, my answer sort of alludes to, I think that there's probably many different forms of relationship and it, it's, it's a bit difficult to know exactly what, what the boundaries are between, for example, what I referred to as an instrumental friendship and one that is long-term and enduring because you may have long-term instrumental friendships where the bond ultimately rests on the continued um, receipt and delivery of benefits. Um, I think that Fred, there's a lot of work to be done in friendships in, on friendships. So Jamie Krems and colleague have, colleagues have been doing some really good work on friendship jealousy, which obviously follows from David Buss and Martin Daly and Margot Wilson and Don Simons and all the many other people who have worked on jealousy in mating relationships. It, it's been several decades that that so for several decades that research has been available, but. Jamie Krems and others have been making some important strides with respect to friendship jealousy. And the, the operation of jealousy and friendships, although Jamie Krems and colleagues have done a great job of establishing that it does operate there, I think that there are really important open questions about different categories of friendship. Um, and what I mean by that is it's, it's not currently clear to me whether what defines, for example, a best friend? And so I think for a lot of people, there is this really strong intuitive concept of a best friend. And often people are very protective of that best friendship and in a way that they aren't protective of, the, of their other friendships. And so I think that there is still quite a lot of work to be done in terms of exactly 
what the different types of friendships are. That is how, how, the, how many different friendships types that our, our mind actually represents um, in the world, as well as the specific benefits that, that come from those. And that's not even and that's not even beginning to get into the issue of cross-sex versus same-sex or same-sex versus opposite-sex friendships. But yeah, so that's that's probably my long-winded answer to what is friendship from an evolutionary perspective. Friendship is is a it is a social relationship type from which individuals can mutually benefit by forming some sort of collaborative or cooperative relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, by, by the way, my other question regarding reciprocal altruism, does it have anything to do with it? Great. Well, so I, I'm glad you asked that because I didn't want my answer to get too much longer. So I'm glad you reminded me of that component of it. So we are quite confident about two different pathways to altruism. And when I say altruism, I'm referring to one organism delivering benefits to another organism at a cost to him or herself. And so in terms of, of kin selection or kin-directed altruism, we have very clear evolutionary models for how it is that, uh, how it is, that, uh, how, how one individual could deliver benefits at a cost of themselves to another individual and how that could be an evolutionarily stable strategy. And that ultimately rests in the genes that those individuals share. Reciprocal altruism is another, it's another clear pathway by which cooperative behavior and cooperative behavior can occur in iterations where I benefit you and in that particular interaction I gain no benefit in return but presumably in the future you will benefit me or perhaps there are observers who see me benefit you and that increases my desirability as a relationship partner and so that's another pathway um, toward cooperation however I think that there are some insights from friendship that might suggest to us that reciprocal altruism doesn't offer a complete account, or at least there are certain features of friendship that should be more carefully explored. And one example that, that comes to mind is that sort of tit-for-tat reciprocation is not characteristic of close friendships, and it actually can be something that is perceived as an active offense in a friendship. So for example, if my best friend if I, let's imagine that he and I go out to get a coffee and I've forgotten my wallet, if he pays $5 for a coffee, just as a side note, I think coffee is rather expensive in Australia and so it would, wouldn't be uncommon to pay 5 or $6 for a coffee, but if, let's imagine that he pays for my coffee and then the next day I see him and I give him $5. Now, I've clearly returned, that is I've returned the, the favor that he did for me However, I can think of fewer things that would be offensive in many best friendships than returning such a trivial amount of money as that. And so I think that, I think that there is more to friendships than, than, a, than a, at least a simple reciprocal altru altruism model can, can explain. And so I think there certainly are issues of irreplaceability that, that come into play. And concept called positive externalities, I think, is also a really exciting idea, and I perhaps inaccurately will, will credit um, John, Tooby, John Tooby and Lita Cosmides with that idea from the, the Banker's Paradox paper. But the idea of a positive externality is that I may be able to, be able to benefit 
simply by associating with you. And even if you don't actively incur costs, for, and, that, and, that's in the, and that is despite you not actively incurring costs for me to receive those benefits. And if that's the case, then it may be an evolutionarily stable strategy for me to deliver benefits to you at a cost to myself, even though you are not delivering benefits to me at a cost mm -hmm. to yourself. I reap benefits from through, through my affiliation with you, but I may not, but you, but that is despite you not actively incurring costs. Anyhow, uh, the, the, my main point there is that I, I think that at least simple reciprocal altruism models may not be able to account for um, at least not the entire psychology of friendship. And so I think that important and exciting directions will look more into positive externalities. And they also will place more emphasis on understanding, as I said, understanding best friendship. I think that there's going to be some important discoveries to be made there in terms of best friendship. And among the many hypotheses out there, one is that what defines a best friend is that in all possible triadic interactions, so with you, your, your, your supposed best friend, and any other potential, any other individual that potentially could be an antagonist towards you, but somebody who's an ally of your friend, a set, what a best friend may be defined by, the key criterion is they will always have your back as opposed to any on any other individual. And in ancestral envir environments, having at least one individual that you could rely on to be on your side in any possible antagonistic triadic exchange, that would have been really invaluable. Again, though, that's just one of many different hypotheses about friendship and best friendship that I think deserves future attention. Mm -hmm. Do we know the differences between same-sex and opposite sex friendships in terms of what characterizes them and how they work? So, well, what we know, we know several things. We, we know that, that the characteristics that people seek out in their same sex friends do not tend to be the characteristics that they seek out in their opposite sex friends. We also know that the preferences that people show in their opposite sex friends, that is the characteristics that they seek out in their opposite sex friends, often, or at least sometimes I should say, at least sometimes closely mimic what we know to be people's mate preferences. Mm -hmm. And so for example, men on average place quite a bit of value on the physical attractiveness of their opposite sex friends. Now that's not direct evidence to say, that's not direct evidence that men are viewing those opposite sex friends as potential mates. However, it is consistent with that hypothesis. So we know, so like I said, I'll just summarize that again. So we know that the characteristics that people seek out in same sex friends are not the same as the characteristics they seek out in their opposite sex friends. We also know that the characteristics that people seek out in their opposite sex friends are very similar on average to the characteristics that people seek out in potential mates. However, finally, one thing we know is that single people, that is unmade individuals, as well as individuals who are 
more open to casual or, or uncommitted mating, their opposite sex friend preferences are even cl more closely matched to their same sex preferences. So, uh, excuse me, their opposite sex friend preferences are even more closely matched to their mate preferences. And so that collection of findings suggests that opposite sex friends may frequently be perceived as potential mates, if not now, some potentially for the future, at least among some individuals, and that, that, that those effects are particularly pronounced for, those, for people who are unmated, for people who are single and or oriented towards uncommitted relationships. Right, and in terms of same-sex friendships, are there, are there any important differences we know about in terms of the kinds of uh, friendships men and women establish among themselves? Yeah, and so, so my, re my, my colleagues and I looked at this a few years ago and we found evidence that's consistent with the hypothesis that the, the characteristics that men would seek out in same-sex friends are aligned with the types of adaptive problems that, to the best of our knowledge, were sex-linked in ancestral environments. So that, to the best of our knowledge, um, physical combat and hunting of large game and status striving, that those three things, um, that those three, those three adaptive problems would have been more relevant or more pertinent or more important to the reproductive success of men in ancestral environments on average. And consistent with those ideas, we found that men more so than women place a particular premium on the physical prowess and the social status of, of their same-sex friends. And, and that's in line with the idea that I, that I shared at the beginning of, of this subsection of this interview when you asked what, what is friendship from, that, from an evolutionary perspective. Well, if, if the hypothesis is correct that that people form friendships to solve the types of adaptive problems that, that humans faced in ancestral environments, and men, more so than women, faced problems related, faced problems where physical prowess would have been a fundamental advantage, then we might expect men to select, for, to preferentially select friends based on the physical prowess more than women do. And that's precisely what we found. Right. Do we understand or have an understanding of the phenomenon of friends with benefits from an evolutionary standpoint? That's a great question, and I, I, I don't think we have a terrific grasp on it yet. I think that that's another friend category. So as I alluded to before, I think some work really needs to be done on what's the distinction between best friends and friends. And I think that in the context of mating relationships, I think we need to know much more about friends with benefits. And I think the term friends with benefits is a bit misleading, and admittedly, I've taken advantage of that term to try to create catchy titles for a couple of my papers. I think that friends with benefits relationships most properly fit in are most properly characterized as mating relationships. So they're called friends with benefits, but those benefits uh, at least in, in the traditional sense or the conventional sense of that phrase, friends with benefits, those tend to refer to reproductive benefits. Right. And so I think that's properly characterized as a mating relationship. Ex exactly, what a, exactly what a friend with benefits would have looked like in ancestral environments is something that I don't think we yet know about. And so I think important steps towards understanding friends with benefits as a relationship type, as well as the psychology of friends with benefits, I think first we need to have um, 
a, a better and a stronger description of exactly what a friends with a friends with benefits relationship is, and what as as well as what are the the psychological features that individuals exhibit or experience when they're in that kind of relationship. Ideally, we might be able to get some insight from traditional societies as to whether these kinds of relationships exist there. It's possible that they do. I'm not aware of any research documenting them. It's also possible that friends with benefits is a relationship type that essentially is a byproduct of modern environments in which individuals have access to a much larger mating pool. Um, it's an environment in which there's a, a much greater level of anonymity where your friends with your friend with benefits may not know or may not be exposed to other potential mates that you might be encountering in potential mating environments. And so I think it's a really interesting domain. It's a really interesting relationship type. Um, I think it remains to be clarified and resolved whether that's it's an evolutionarily novel relationship type or whether it's something that has existed and persisted throughout our evolutionary past. But I think these are all really, they're really interesting and but open questions for future research. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. So I would also like to ask you about the relationship straight women establish with gay men. So is there something special about it? I mean, are there particular circumstances where straight women trust gay men more so even than they would trust perhaps straight men? Yes. Yeah. And I think there there is something unique about that relationship. And it's it, it, that the thing that makes it unique, I think, is, is most pronounced in the arena of mating. And so what I'm referring to there is that if you are a, a heterosexual woman, well, both other heterosexual women as well as heterosexual men could potentially have ulterior mating motives. So other heterosexual women would potentially pose, would potentially be mating rivals with you because they, they might be interested in mating with the same men that you're interested in. And then heterosexual men may have ulterior mating motives because they may want to mate with you even if you do not want to mate with them. And so both heterosexual women and heterosexual men may have ulterior mating motives that could strategically interfere with what your goals are as a heterosexual woman. On the other hand, a gay man doesn't have either of those motives. And a gay man doesn't want to mate with you, and he's also not in competition with you for other heterosexual men because other heterosexual men won't be interested in a homosexual man. And so through the, and I want to credit Eric Russell principally, he's one of my colleagues, he's really a terrific, terrific guy and a terrific researcher. He was the one who spearheaded this work, but across several studies, we, we, we showed evidence that women's psychology, heterosexual women's psychology is particularly attuned to that women may not be consciously aware of or may not be able to consciously articulate this language of ulterior mating motives, but women's psychology, that is, in, in terms of deciding whom to trust, seems to be very sensitive to the sex and, and sexual orientation of other individuals. And when primed with mating competition or when Ask, when asking for mating advice, a particular premium, when heterosexual women place a particular premium on advice coming from gay men, specifically in the mating domain where, where women would, heterosexual women would know that those gay men don't have ulterior mating motivations. And so we, we showed that overall effect in, in a few different ways. Another, another, another way we showed that, that 
women's trust in gay men increases as their perceptions of mating competition increases. And so we sort of tweak that phenomenon in a few different ways. But overall, it does suggest that at least in certain contexts, specifically in with respect to mating relevant information and advice, and when mating competition increases, women tend to increase the value and trust that they place in advice and information from gay men. Right. So, uh, okay, so shifting gears now a little bit and heading to the last big topic of, of our conversation today, uh, I would like to ask you about physical attractiveness. And before we get into some specific physical traits or aspects of physical attractiveness you've studied, uh, a general question. So. Uh, what are the physical traits uh, that men and women find the most attractive in the opposite sex? Oh man, Th these are all really terrific questions and I, I love your questions because some of them are sort of foundational to evolutionary psychology and they remain robust and, and, and unquestioned and shouldn't be questioned like evolutionary psychology proposes species typical mechanisms not species typical behavior. This question about what are the specific features that men and women want, I think it's, I think the domain of standards or perceptions of attractiveness is really, really exciting um, because as, as, as science has become more open, potentially in response to the replication crisis and it has met, as methods have improved and transparency and collaboration have, have increased, some of the some of the things we once believed to be true are it's becoming less clear that they're true and in other contexts things that we believe to be true are just as true as ever but the reason that they're true appears to have seen a large shift or a large change so that's 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 my broad overview but let me jump into just a, a couple of examples so for example I think that there's a, a large body of literature suggesting that we both men and women place a lot of value on symmetry in potential mates. That is, that symmetry has large effects on perceptions of attractiveness. And I think that that was a long-standing and, and a long-held view among many social scientists. More recent research has called that in, into question, and it's identified several issues with it. One is that symmetry does not seem to be the, at least does not, is not as reliable an indicator of developmental instability as it was thought to be, and a lot of that has to do with measurement error. Um, and many of the, so many of the, Many of the effects, sizes, in terms of the relationship between symmetry and developmental instability, those seem to be quite small. And then many of the effects with respect to the relationship between symmetry and social perceptions, like perceptions of attractiveness, also seem to be extremely small. That said, I think that the I don't think that there's a clear verdict on symmetry yet, because I think more advanced methods, although newer methods are highlighting shortcomings of previous methods, I think that what really newer methods are showing is that there may be very different forms of symmetry that need to be and we that need to be distinguished and, and discriminated and disambiguated. So you can I'll try to describe them briefly. So you can have rotational symmetry, you can have vertical symmetry, you can have horizontal there's different forms of symmetry and these different forms of symmetry as individual factors actually do seem to have profound effects or clear, potentially robust effects on social 
perceptions, perception of attractiveness, but composites that combine all of those different forms of symmetry into a single form of symmetry, actually, when you do that, you fail to pick up what the individual factors are picking up on. So symmetry is is sort of a giant, it's sort of a, a colossus in, in the field of, of standards of attractiveness that seemed to have a recent collapse, but I really think it's just a conversation that's getting started and will just need to see um, needs to see much greater work. I'll, I'll share my pet hypothesis uh, with you here, and that is that I suspect that although a great deal of research treats symmetry as sort of a continuous variable, where it says you can be perfectly symmetrical and then there's a continuum to very asymmetrical, I suspect that our minds process symmetry a bit differently to that. I suspect that when we observe most typically developing individual, I suspect that our minds are attuned or are ready to attend to large deviations from symmetry, but not the very common, essentially universal deviations from symmetry that we observe in everybody. So my face and my body are going to be asymmetrical to some degree. So is every human being. There is not going to be any perfect, uh, perfectly symmetrical human being. And in fact, when we create those perfectly symmetrical human beings, they often people perceive them to be monstrous. They, they look like chimeras. They look very strange. You might be familiar with that. However, I suspect that there is some sort of switch that happens. I suspect that our mind actually is sensitive to very large deviations or very large perturbations from symmetry and that when we detect those large perturbations, which may indicate traumatic injury, they may indicate um, a, a very large genetic mutation load or other very severe problems with real fitness impacts, I suspect that those that there's there is a switch and that there is a large and pronounced effect on our perceptions of those individuals' desirability as a potential mate. And so I think that research is going to need to find ways to measure symmetry better. And I think it's going to it's it, it also is going to need to consider this idea of treating symmetry not as a continuous variable but as a, a dichotomous variable where you're looking at extreme versus the relatively minor, very frequent forms of, of, of asymmetry. Okay, so anyhow, sorry, I, I spoke a great deal about symmetry, but I think there's a lot of exciting work to be, to be done there, and I think that it's important that it gets out there because I think for a long time, everybody thought symmetry was really important. Recently, there's been research that says it's definitely not, and I think that the reality is, is that work needs to figure out what the appropriate, what, what the appropriate characterization is. Mm -hmm. Continue on another one, um, waist to hip ratio. So this is a classic example where, where many years ago, it was documented that men in particular placed had placed value on on women's waist to hip ratio. That is the ratio of women's waist circumference to their hip circumference, in the context of attractiveness judgments. That what that is men women's waist-to-hip ratio has very robust effects on men's perceptions of women's attractiveness. And in fact, so many studies have found that effect that some literature only dis actually refers, there's so many studies that show that men have a preference for, that, that women's waist-to-hip ratio influences men's perceptions of women's attractiveness that it often is more convenient and, and easier to describe the very small handful of studies that fail to 
climate effect. The effect is very robust. It is, in my view, unquestionably the case that men's attractiveness assessment mechanisms track or pay attention to women's waist to hip ratio. The very uh, uh, let, uh, let me just ask you uh, a follow-up question to that, but this effect has been validated cross-culturally, right? And I mean, is the value uh, more or less the same across cultures? So that idea of waist to hip ratio 0.7, is that universal or not? So those, that's, those are two separate questions, and, and, okay. and the fact that and the fact that, you've that you brought them up as separate questions is really useful. So the, the effect that, that there is an effect of women's waist to hip ratio on men's attractive judgments of women's attractiveness, that is something that has been very robustly documented across cultures. The idea of 0.7 specifically being quote unquote the ideal or the universal um, preferred, that one, I, I wouldn't endorse that idea. And I think Larry Sugiyama does uh, a great job of describing this in some of his work. And so what men appear to have is they appear to have a preference for a waist to hip ratio that is locally low. And so that is to say that among women in their local environment, among women, among the group of women that they would be exposed to, men seem to develop a preference, and this may be an, on a developmental preference, that is, it, it occurs ontogenetically, and there's lots of proximate social influences on this, but they develop a, a preference for a waist-to-hip ratio that is low relative to the local population. And in populations that, on average, have a higher waist-to-hip ratio, it's not likely that men in that society or in, in that particular group group are going to have a preference for a waist to hip ratio of 0.7 specifically, but they still will on average have a preference for a waist to hip ratio that is comparatively or relative to the low population distribution. Right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, apart from symmetry and the waist to hip ratio, are there any other physical traits in men or women that have been well studied and I mean, replicated, cross-culturally validated? Oh, great, yeah, continue, continue on. And allow me, if you will, just to advance, to say one final thing before we move past sure. um, wasting ratio. And that is, by, by my count, and uh, there's, there's a great, um, great review article by Beauvais, 2019, and I hope I am pronouncing her name correctly. Um, but by my count, there's about 16 different hypotheses for why men men's attractiveness assessment systems pay attention to women's right. ratio. And so I think there's a lot of work to, to be done to really resolve why it why that effect exists so we know that there is this robust effect of women's waist to hip ratio on men's perceptions of women's attractiveness but the whys range from waist to hip ratio as an indication of how many children the woman has born as an indicator of parity or it could be an indication of reproductive age the hypotheses are diverse and each one of them generates a distinct set of predictions about exactly what contexts which waist to hip ratios are going to be preferred or exactly in which contexts men are going to place more value on women's waist to hip ratio. And so I think there's some really exciting questions to be addressed there. Right. With, res with respect to other features, and I think that offers a valuable segue into androgen or testosterone linked traits. And so 
there again is, is, is a large body of literature suggesting that women have preferences for features in men like muscularity, upper body muscular development, masculine faces, or that is the development of facial structures and, and, and bony structures in the face that are associated with high levels of testosterone. More recent research has shown cross-cultural variability in some of those effects. And I, what appears to be the case to me is it appears to be the case that there is large cross-cultural, or at least some cross-cultural variability in how, how masculine physically a, a man is as a desirable mating partner across different cultures. That said, I don't think that cross-cultural variability is arbitrary or random. I still think that the, the best way to gain traction and understand and explain that cross-cultural variability, I think a lot, of the, a lot of the explanatory capacity is going to lie in an evolutionary framework, just one that is really nuanced and understands the idea of context effects. And so in so androgens may, like testosterone, can potentially carry costs and benefits to the individual who bears them. Um, and, but it's also the case that, andro that features like having a, let's say, a very um, physically formidable male partner, and as we talked to alert, as we talked about earlier, physical formidability may be an input into the anger system. So physically formidable men may on average be angrier or more aggressive men. Now the costs and benefits of mating with a physically formidable and angry man, let's just we'll keep it as a simple example, the costs and benefits of mating with somebody like that are going to vary widely as a function of the ecological circumstances that the individual that the, that the individual is in. So in very resource scarce environments or in environment, so if in very resource scarce environments or environments that are associated with high levels of threats to survival, the benefits of those features, including to the, to the relationship partner of somebody with those features may be much greater than the benefits of those features in environments that are not associated with survival threat. And so I think that I think that I think that men's levels of facial and physical masculinity and muscularity, I think that women's attractiveness, women's attractiveness judgment systems, that is women perceiving men, I think that women's attractiveness assessment systems are designed to attend to those features in men. But me saying that they're designed to pay attention to them is not me saying that women always will prefer them. And so I think that should I continue with the list of, of physical features, or do you want to transition on to? Uh, uh, no, uh, uh, please go through perhaps two or three more, and then sure. uh, perhaps I will get into some specific ones I have here. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, so, well, I think there's the I, I think that the remainder that I would discuss actually, in, in many ways, are are at the frontier of our understanding of standards, human standards of attractiveness. And I, I think standards of attractiveness are a really exciting area and exciting domain because I think that there was really important work done in evolutionary psychology several decades ago, for example, with Dev Singh's work on waist to hip ratio. But I think there's a lot of work remaining to be done. So one that is, it's, it's almost so obvious as to be uninteresting, but the eyes. So 
white sclera. So the 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 eyes are there's different components to the to the eye uh, that that we can see as perceivers, and I'm happy to talk about some of those different features. But there's really robust evidence that suggests that we perceive white whites, that is the white part of your eye, the sclera, the outside part, that when that is when when that exhibits deviations from a white color, that that decreases perceptions of attractiveness. And despite that being such a robust effect, uh, it's not something that seems to be as glamorous a finding as women's waist to hip ratio or as men's masculine jaw and, and eyebrows. So the eyes. One thing that I think will be really interesting to see, to watch how it unfolds in, in the near future in terms of the eyes is that the eyes, if you look closely at the eye, there's actually four different parts. There's the white part on the outside, the sclera, and most people, almost everybody's familiar with that. Everybody's also familiar with the colored part, the iris, and everybody's familiar with the pupil. Far fewer people are familiar with the sort of dark semi-opaque ring that separates the white part of the eye from the colored part. And that's called the limbal ring. And recent research um, done by some, by some folks, uh, I believe his name is Darren Peshek, I might be mispronouncing his name, and colleagues, he did some work about 10 years ago that showed the limbal ring influenced perceptions of attractiveness. And that work has been followed up by Mitch Brown and colleagues and Donald Sacco. Again, forgive me if I'm, I'm mispronouncing some of these people's last names. But, it, but again, they showed very specific effects of the limbal ring, although they weren't entirely consistent with Darren Peshek's and Darren Peshek and colleagues' work. And so I think there's, there's quite a bit of work to be done with respect to the eyes and how they influence attractiveness. And I think that one thing that's really important for evolutionary psychologists and social scientists in general to consider is that some of these effects may be the consequence of adaptation. So we may have evolved to pay attention to how white other people's eyes are. Have we evolved, do we have psychological systems designed to attend specifically to the limbal ring? Possibly, an alternative hypothesis is that the limbal ring, by virtue of it being dark and being at the boundary of the sclera, it may exert its effects simply by making it seem like the sclera is whiter. And so if that's the case, it may not be a true cue to something fitness related, but rather it may be unintentionally or perhaps intentionally through evolution, hijacking our systems that are paying attention to the whiteness or perceived whiteness of the sclera. Right. So uh, just going back to, or going back, no, stay on the topic of physical attractiveness. Uh, what is uncertainty and how does it affect facial attractiveness? Okay, that's a great question. So I think in terms of uncertainty, almost every decision or almost every inference that we have to make in the real world is some decision that we have to make in the context of uncertain information. And so that is to say that we, we almost never are 100% certain that the information we have is an accurate indicator of the thing that we're trying to determine. And so I'll give, a, I'll give a, a familiar example when we're talking about uncertainty. And so you, so almost all of us will, will likely have a smoke detector or a fire alarm. They, they have different names in our house. Now, that 
system is supposed to go off. It's, if it's called a smoke detector, it's really supposed to be a fire detector. It's supposed to go off when there's a fire in our house. Now, the way that it, one way that it can detect whether there's a fire in our house is that it can't directly detect whether there's a fire in our house. It has to detect, for example, a certain kind of molecule that is suspended in the air that is associated with there actually being a fire present. Now, it has to make that inference or that judgment and go off, that is, make, make it siren in the context of uncertainty, because really what it's working with is it's working with this uncertain information like smoke molecules, and I'm not going to get into the specific details or the chemical composition of smoke, of course, but those same molecules are produced by an actual fire and by us burning toast in the toaster. Okay. And so a smoke detector has to make judgments under uncertainty. It has to use cues to the thing it's actually trying to detect. And we as human beings in particular in, well, we as human beings, including in social, um, in social contexts, including in trying to perceive other individuals, including their physical phenotype or their physical attractiveness, we have to make judgments under uncertainty as well. Now, one way in which we would be uncertain about somebody else's physical features is if we don't have complete information about their, their physical appearance. And that can occur because of poor lighting. It can occur because we have gotten a very brief glimpse of them. It can occur because they're wearing makeup that conceals specific physical features. It can be because they're wearing clothing that artificially enhances or augments specific features or clothing that is particularly loose and in doing so conceals or fails to reveal the actual physical underlying features. And so there's lots of ways we can actually be uncertain or we, we don't have complete and accurate information about somebody else's physical appearance. And so we, in those situations or in those conditions, we have to make judgments about our, our mind, our, our attractiveness assessment systems. If they're to operate, they have to make judgments under these contexts of uncertainty. And so that, that's what I mean by uncertainty. Okay. So I would like to ask you about uh, one aspect of physical attractiveness we haven't talked about yet, particularly applied to women. So how is lumbar curvature attractive? Great. Okay, so I think this is a this is another area in which I, there's I really think there's just so much exciting work to be done at the frontier of our understanding of standards of attractiveness, and I think lumbar curvature is particularly exciting because I frankly I've advanced one and now two different hypotheses about what lumbar curvature means and why we should expect men in particular to be attracted to specific values of lumbar curvature. So lumbar curvature, what it refers to is it refers to the, the curve, the observe, externally observable curve in the lower back. And that's something that, can, that men can observe in women, women can observe it in men, so on and so forth. But yeah, it's just the curve in the lower back region. Now, that curve in my original research that I that was published with my wonderful colleagues and collaborators back in 2015, the principal hypothesis that motivated that research was the fact that that curvature in the lower back that, that we can observe when other individuals are standing, it is a rely it is reliably correlated with an underlying set of spinal structures, set of structures in the spine, specifically the lumbar vertebrae. Vertebrae. Mm -hmm. Now, when a so 
I think that we tend to think about, let's see if I can do this on the camera here, we tend to think about vertebrae as if they're kind of like hockey pucks, as if they're sort of flat disks. And most vertebrae are flat disks. That is, they're not taller on one side than they are in the other. However, some vertebrae are, they look more like cheese wedges. And I don't know if my hands, my hands are probably going to fall short of being able to do this, but they sort of look more triangular where they're really tall in the front and actually quite short in the back. And, and I think that a lot of people are unaware that some of our vertebrae have that shape, but specifically the, there are vertebrae in the lower back that have that characteristic. And interestingly enough, there's a sex difference wherein women have three of those sort of cheese wedge shaped lumbar vertebrae, whereas men only have two. And on top of that, the amount of wedging, that is how sort of acute or sharp the angle, sharp, that's a great pun, uh, how acute the angle is, that is something that is essentially revealed to us through how curved the spine appears from the outside. So obviously as observers or perceivers, you and I can't see another person's spinal structures, but we can see how curvy their lower back is. And how curvy their lower back is is reliably correlated with these underlying spinal structures. So then I then the key question is, so David, why are these spinal structures important? And research by uh, and Lieberman and, and some other folks, I believe, who are biological anthropologists at Harvard, or at least at the time were, um, they showed that these this lumbar vertebral wedging is is a is fundamentally important for women specifically to shift their center of mass back over the hips when they're pregnant, and that's really really important because human females are unique in the animal kingdom in that they're the only bipedal creatures that have this long gestation period. So kangaroos are also bipedal, but they actually give birth to this incre incredibly tiny little joey that weighs grams, if even that. Whereas human females, we st human females stand on two legs, and then there's this protrusion that develops over the course of pregnancy. And if women were ancestral women were unable to shift the, their center of mass back over the hips during pregnancy, they would have been subjected to a nearly 800% increase in hip torque. Now, that, that's a, obviously a large increase. And if if women were unable to so if women had been subjected to that degree of hip torque, that could have led to debilitating spinal injury. It could have impaired their ability to forage and to provide for themselves, their offspring, any existing dependent offspring. It could have risked mal malnutrition for their fetus and for themselves, as well as for any, any mate that, that would be potentially dependent on them. And women's capacity and, and foraging um, potential and productivity are far from trivial. And in fact, in some foraging societies, women actually provide on average more calories to the family diet than men do. So these are not trivial um, implications of the ability to continue to forage during pregnancy. So the hypothesis was, was based on these pregnancy-related benefits of lumbar vertebral wedging. So that is to say that we we expected men to men's attractiveness assessment mechanisms to pay very close attention to women's lumbar curvature because of the fundamental fundamental importance of women's lumbar spinal structures to their 
um, reproductive success in ancestral environments, specifically their ability to solve this problem of having this forward shifting center of mass during pregnancy. So that was the original hypothesis. Now, I said that people's lumbar curvature is a reliable indicator of the degree of wedging in their spine, and it very much is. However, it's also something that people can actively manipulate. So for example, women can put on high heels, and high-heeled footwear, on average, will manipulate or change women's lumbar curvature so that actually becomes more acute. That is, it becomes curvier on average. That doesn't happen for, for all women, but it's something that can happen. So this feature, lumbar curvature, it's a tricky one because it simultaneously is a reliable indicator of, of underlying spinal structures, but it also is something that people can actively manipulate through behaviors like putting on high heels, but also through behaviors like arching the back by contracting the lower back muscles. And so I think that there's a lot, again, I think there's a lot of work to be done to determine exactly what lumbar curvature is acute to. That is, is it an indicator of underlying vertebral wedging and, and therefore an indicator of the ability to solve the adaptive problem of a forward shifted center of mastering pregnancy? Is it an indicator of sexual proceptivity and the reason I mention that is because in many mammalian species, including some primates, like certain monkeys, um, arching of the back, behavior of arching of the back is actually a proceptive signal. That is, it's a signal that uh, females can engage in to show interest or to demonstrate interest towards other men. And that, and that idea of lordosis behavior, although it's something that's been documented across a diverse set of mammalian species, I think uh, a prevalent view is that it's something that was long lost from humans, long lost in humans' evolutionary past. But I think that that assumption needs to be uh, called into question because there is at least some emerging data and some emerging evidence that suggests that the lordotic movement and the lordosis behavior may actually be an integral part of human mating behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, so, apart from the effects they have on lumbar curvature, are there any other reasons why women wear high heels? I mean, are there any other aspects of, the, of their anatomy that change and that would be attractive to males? Yeah, that's, that's a really terrific question. Um, and one thing that gets tricky with lumbar curvature is that and, and I haven't rigorously documented, but I suspect that this effect can occur, and that is when you contract your lower back muscles, whether it's through an active contraction or if you have to because you're wearing high-heeled footwear, I suspect that the contraction of the posterior chain, sort of the, the muscles on the back side of the body, may also be associated with sort of a rolling open of the shoulders, which would potentially lead to increased exposure or protrusion of the breasts. So I think that's something that's a potential confound in particular with the issue of putting on high-heeled footwear. And I think that that's something that should be investigated. Um, I, th I, th I think that they're also, putting on high heels also increases the tone of the muscles and potentially the quadriceps muscles in the legs. So it could potentially increase perceptions of physical conditioning. Um, and then Put, there are also a bunch of potentially media-driven associations between women's sexuality as well as uh, perceptions of their agency and power that are, that are associated with 
being able to physically see the high heeled shoes on women. And so I suspect that it will be important for future research to use designs that looks at the different features of the body that can be changed by high heels and then looks at how those effects do or do not influence social perceptions when the shoes are actually shown to the perceivers versus not being shown to the perceivers because some of these judgments may actually be driven simply by the sight of the shoes as opposed to by the changes to the woman's body that the shoes induce. Right. So I would just like to ask you, of course, we could go through other physical traits, but we've already went through a lot of them. Let me just ask you another uh, last question. So okay. can we study human attractiveness uh, through dating apps? I mean, are they reliable enough or are there perhaps certain aspects of human attractiveness that it's easier to study through dating apps or the internet than in real life, let's say. Well, so I think studying these things in quote unquote real life in sort of what we might refer to as ecologically valid settings, I think that can be really challenging. I think that speed dating designs might be some of the best or the highest ecological validity experimental studies, or that is laboratory-based studies that we can design. I think there are a lot of advantages to trying to study attractiveness and more broadly mating psychology through dating apps. And two of, two of the ones, one is that it's, it is it often is more ecologically valid because this is what we are observing. If you're able to get access to actual, for example, Tinder profiles and ex actual data in terms of how people respond to different Tinder profiles, well, you're you're coming close to measuring actual behavior in the real world in a way that you might not be in the laboratory. Another aspect of it is is just the sheer volume of data that are available. And so it can be very labor and time intensive to take pictures of individual participants that come into the laboratory and then have those rated by another set of participants where in reality, things like Tinder, and I'm just using that as I think what is probably still the, the most prominent example, the, those, although Tinder isn't designed for research studies, at least that wasn't, that's not its principal purpose to, as, as I understand it, it very much has the design of a research study. And I think that there are tons of different aspects of attractiveness and mating psychology that can be studied there, um, ranging from how men respond to, for example, uncertainty. And in the case of a Tinder profile, a uncertainty about someone's physical appearance could show up in the form of a person putting up a profile picture in which they're wearing large sunglasses, for example. Can't see much of their face. Those sunglasses are covering up 60% of their face. Or uh, other aspects of mating psychology that we could investigate through some of these apps is what are the... Um, specific behaviors that individuals are displaying themselves as engaging in. So for example, and I'm not sure if there's rigorous scientific research on this yet, I can't recall if this is just anecdotal or not, but do men disproportionately, that is more so than women, tend to, to have profile photographs that involve them holding large fish that they've caught or engaging in hunting or those kinds of behaviors. So I think that it's actually a, a, a very valuable and rich mine that, um, from which a, a bunch of gold could be drawn um, as, as long as the researchers are, are asking the questions in the right way and making good use of those resources. 
Okay, great. So uh, just before we go, Dr. Lewis, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the internet? Sure. Well, I think the best way to, to find my work would just be to, to go to my ResearchGate profile. I think that that's an advantageous way to do it. Um, I'm, I'm not affiliated with ResearchGate in, in any um, financial capacity, but I think it's a, I, I encourage my students to use ResearchGate because I think it's a great way for people who, I think lots of journals are are moving towards an open um, an open access model, but um, for people who don't have a university affiliation or can't get access to some of these resources through a university library, their research gate enables them to access many articles. And then for other types of resources like book chapters, I think that people are going to very frequently going to be able to access those those materials through ResearchGate in a way that they wouldn't be able to elsewhere. So I suppose my ResearchGate profile, just David M.G. Lewis on ResearchGate, and then that also is my Twitter handle, so David M.G. Lewis in case people are interested in following me. Okay, great. So it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks so much. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. So to keep the channel sustainable and to keep it running, I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page. You have all sorts of benefits there and any amount, even just $1 would already be a great help. You also have links to PayPal in the description box. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lagurero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Forrest Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervois, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roch, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardus France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.